Hello and welcome to the UBA Extra Salt podcast. This podcast is an exploration of the speech and language therapy profession, offering extracurricular topics with extra special guests, hoping to create intrigue around the possibilities of the profession. In truly professionally reflective style, all of our guests submit their three proudest achievements and three biggest difficulties to discuss so that we can learn from their journey. Season one shines a light on the less well-known clinical areas, and I'm proud to say that my extra special guest today is Ashley Stevens. Ashley graduated in 2010 and moved around the paediatric community opportunities, settling on the post-16 service. Ashley says it's the final push to develop a young person's independence and functional communication skills before they step out into the big wide world. Ashley, thank you so much for being here. Hello, you're welcome. (laughs) It really is a big wide world now, isn't it? Definitely, yes. Lots and lots of uh, things for them to encounter when they step out of education. And have have you seen that impact on the young people that you're working with? Because even outside of kind of the COVID pandemic that we're going through at the moment, the world is so different for teenagers now than it was a long time ago when I was a teenager. Things like social media and how they make friends and maintain friendships and the job opportunities available to them have have significantly shifted. And do you see any kind of changes in the pressures or concerns that young people have that you're working with? Yeah, definitely. And I definitely learn a lot from them in terms of what's current and, you know, what I should know about, but I've actually never heard of. Um, But yeah, no, I think in terms of the focus of the work that we do, it's so diverse because, as you say, the, the, um, the world for teenagers and young people changes so rapidly Um, and you know I think it was last term I found myself setting a therapy target of creating a YouTube video with one of my young people and supporting him through how to devise the narrative for that and um, actually get that posted online and many many terms that I had never encountered before in my life were finding their way onto a target sheet. That is that's amazing and how many hits did that YouTube um, I, I mean, I don't really know what's average, but the, the young, young person was very happy that he'd had around 50. That's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, and kept texting me to say 51, 52. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, um, do you feel like it's a better relationship that you get to develop with your post-16 kind of young people than maybe we do in other elements of... SLT because it sounds like if they're texting you and it they're so person-centered the goals that you're setting do you feel that there's a better kind of rapport and relationship developed yeah definitely and I always try to um, make that really clear from the start of college speech and language therapy that this is going to look incredibly different to speech and language therapy that you've encountered before because typically they will have an idea of speech therapy and it probably was very appropriate speech therapy for their age back then but they don't want to access that now you know they find that too babyish you know they don't think that they need it anymore had one learner tell me they've passed speech and language therapy Um, so always try and make it really clear about the the relevant things that we can work on at their age and then they kind of get this light bulb moment where they're like oh right what you do that as well 
people um, and then you get to the stage where yeah you've got a really good relationship with them things like um, having whatsapp on my work phone is absolutely brilliant because you know I can actually have various different kinds of communication with them on there um, and it can be sort of easily tracked whether they're seeing my messages really rather mm. than sort of sending emails or whatever and then just thinking oh, I don't know if they ever got that um yeah it's it's helpful and I think it's a, a good skill for them in terms of keeping appointments but as a sort of bridge level so sort of informal appointments that are coming through by text as a precursor to let's say you have an NHS appointment later down the line and you have to keep to that you're using that modality that they are more comfortable with as well whereas mm -hmm. emails are potentially a little bit intimidating and very formal I know they they were to me as a teenager yeah. about how to word it um whereas whatsapp possibly feels more accessible to them and a bit more natural yeah do you, oh sorry <laughs> no, I was gonna say they do a similar thing with their tutors in college um so they have a platform not whatsapp but it's a, a designated platform for the college but where they can send kind of instant messages and get responses about kind of homework or deadlines and things like that so they're quite au fait with that kind of communication which is good that yes. it's being integrated the people that you're working with obviously they are 16 to 18 mm -hmm. 16 to 25 to 25 okay yeah. so to still be receiving speech and language therapy at that point potentially they've started their speech and language therapy journey really very early and that's continued do you see that there's a fatigue element to it that by the time they get to college like you say they're, they're done with it they've, they've passed it they're fed up with appointments and that that shift in what that looks like for them in terms of their speech and language therapy input has to happen from a motivational perspective not Definitely. just being at the appropriate level for their age and life stage mm -hmm. yeah definitely and I think uh, I had mentioned in sort of the information mm. I sent around sort of finding that one motivation for them um, and often that is the best way to harness their therapy sessions and their aspirations within it so finding out if they want to earn money get a job live by themselves get a partner those kind of things more often than not there will be something within there that kind of motivates the young person and then you can talk about bringing in development of communication skills towards that end um, as opposed to what perhaps they perceive speech therapy to help with in the past which would be more academia based so passing exams getting along in class which obviously we're still helping them with their vocational studies that they're mm. carrying out at, at college now and, and sometimes English and maths qualifications as well but it really does take a completely different focus in terms of you know if, if you're rubbish at maths that's fine you can still do this um, whereas I think maybe their experience in in um, education is more this is going to help you access your lessons and actually I'm not bothered by my lessons mm -hmm. um, so yeah you definitely see a different sort of end and one of the difficulties that you sent through was around working holistically with families still so involving mm -hmm. all of the kind the key partners around that young person but also like you've said being very person-centered with them about where they want their skills to be developed and, and what's important to them. Do you find that, I'm presuming some families are really quite on board with their young person developing independence and confidence in their communication. Do you come across families where there's a real difference between what the young person 
prioritizes what the family prioritizes. Yes, definitely. And if they prioritize it at all in mm. terms of accessing services. Um, so I think when I when I started in this post, um, the the notion was to go to the parent as the the initial point of contact, purely because, you know, post 16 working was very new and that's what you would have done for a school age young person. Um, and we've sort of shifted that now so that where possible the first point of contact is the young person and then obviously establishing that they have the mental capacity to make those kind of decisions and to be involved in those discussions um, and as I said also managing that with working holistically so involving their parents but only if they want them to be involved and only as much as they want them to be involved if they can say that they want that <laughs> to happen <laughs> so it is a little bit of a minefield um, and I think yeah I'm always you know even if I'm emailing parents I, it will always be because the young person has said that that's okay or I've mentioned to them in a session oh is it okay if I just send this to your mum and then she might remind you of it um, but it's really putting them at the center of it and and their family as you say are the partners and you know it's good for them to be involved but they're not the decision makers um, and I think it works both ways it, it works in terms of parents wanting young people to access therapy for longer than they need and want to mm -hmm. um, and it also works sometimes on the contrary where they perhaps don't want their children to access therapy and if we weren't to go to the the young person first they would never actually get a say as to whether they want it or not um, so yeah it comes with some some real challenges and, and as I said it's sort of um, I've had a lot of contact with our company's legal team in terms of devising sort of consent forms um, for young people to sign to say that they do or don't want therapy um, and balancing the amount of input their parents will need to have on that form based on their capacity to give consent themselves. And what is the age of consent for you? So if a 16 year old um, came to you and there was this discrepancy between the the young person wanting or not wanting therapy and the parent having the opposing view at 16 can that young person consent for themselves for that or do you have to have parents on board until 18 it's very gray <laughs> and um the, the legal team have acknowledged that it is a gray area mm. so they have advised us that we should be having um signatures from both young person and parent at that stage and unfortunately if it's the case that the parent's view is different to the young person's view we're going with the parent's view mm. now that doesn't mean that I'm gonna you know around someone until they absolutely do <laughs> come to my therapy session but it does mean that I'll send out appointments and I'll say they're there if you want them um, whereas if if a young person over 18 says they they don't want to access therapy and I can see that they understand the consequences of that mm -hmm. I'll discharge them Whereas that wouldn't happen for that, that 16 to 18 year old. It really is a minefield. And I is part of that um, how the education system is structured? Is it in part that post-16 SLT services are still quite rare, actually? Mm -hmm. I know yours is really well established, but in other geographical areas, it doesn't really exist that much. Is that hindering some of the kind of development? Of the governance around it do you think um possibly i think i do think that area of 16 to 18 is just a a gray area for all 
all mm. issues of consent. Um, but definitely, I, I still, you know, I, I've been in this post for three and a bit years. Um, and yeah, it, it started when I joined the service, it was in its early stages. But I can certainly see from the contracts that we take on from neighbouring boroughs that we are the only borough really that provides a service consistently to this age range. Um, and I think with the change in guidance for the education healthcare plans, running beyond 18, um, which would have been sort of four-ish years ago now, lots of young people dropped off because they were over 18, but actually we're still within the time frame where they could come back because their plan could now be kind of reactive because they are now with, up, they're still not 25, mm -hmm. so they're still eligible for services. Um, so hope, I, I think that possibly caused a bit of the, drop off in terms of services for older young people um, whereas hopefully now because you know the advice is consistent you mm -hmm. won't have that drop off and resurgence you'll just have people consistently knowing they have services if appropriate until 25. I am marvelled <laughs> by your, your legal knowledge because <laughs> you have to know it for your job I suppose but um I, what came across with everything that you sent me before we started talking was this real sense of your sense of duty as an advocate for these young people and how important that role felt to you to um, promote their well-being and their best interests and to support them as individuals uh, which was I think it's just reflected in everything that you're saying in terms of how on board you are and and how flexible you can be in terms of what that support looks like. Do you think some of that flexibility has helped you do that transition to teletherapy? Because you wrote that it was seamless, a seamless transition to teletherapy. And yeah. everybody else I've spoken to has looked ever so slightly haggard, stressed, <laughs> panicked, and really um, finding it quite clunky and quite difficult to get their head around this new way of delivering a service whereas you look wonderfully refreshed and calm <laughs> with a seamless transition is that part of your flexibility do you think I think it's part of the um the fact that they are techie teenagers and you know th th that's their absolute go-to in all walks of their life so you know they they are using computers and technology for everything so to use it for their therapy is no big deal to them really um and i think definitely i mean i work full-time within the post-16 service so that means that i can be incredibly flexible in terms of sessions so you know if if they can't make a monday i can offer any other day of the week um and for them, at the moment, we're delivering on their days off from college. So some of them are more than happy to do that. Others think, do you know what? It's a day off. I actually want the day off. I don't want to be doing anything sort of seemingly <laughs> college related. So they would rather see me before they go into college in the morning or when they come back from college in the mm -hmm. afternoon. And again, I can have that flexibility with them. But the, I mean, they definitely teach me things about the platforms that we're using. Our, our go-to is kind of Microsoft Teams, but for some young people, they prefer to use Skype, which our company are also fine with. I'm not a big expert on Skype. Mm -hmm. um, so they'll just say, oh, don't worry, Ashley, I'll ring you. <laughs> I'm like, okay, yeah, great. So I just sit there waiting for a call <laughs> from my young person. Um, and then, you know, they'll, they'll teach me through 
through it oh yeah the chat button's there you, can you see it on the right <laughs> um, so yeah it is it is another world but it's a world that they're very familiar with be so nice for them to have that role reversal where suddenly they are the expert and the teacher and mm. they are having to support an adult <laughs> to do definitely something. we've seen it in groups as well where um we've uh, it, on microsoft teams we do our um our therapy groups and the young person um can share a screen if we allow them to mm -hmm. and so if we want them to show us something and if we want to give them a bit of a confidence boost we'll say oh, could you just show us how to do that um, and then they can share the screen and show us what to do and yeah that that worked really well in terms of engagement and yeah as you say giving them that sense of giving something to us absolutely and um, how um how much do you think it's here to stay so i um have a small amount of experience of working with younger teenagers mm -hmm. and they have done so much better actually using telehealth rather than in person especially with disfluency and things like that and i wonder if that is like you said because it is often almost a primary communication method for our young people rather than face to face which feels much more formal and structured and um, official do you think you're going to continue to offer some sort of telehealth has it gone that well yeah definitely i think that we will continue to do it for the foreseeable future in elements there are still parts of it that you know you we can't achieve through teletherapy so when when the colleges weren't in actually um observing a lesson was possible because their lessons were on zoom so i could easily mm. drop into a lesson but now they are back in provision but i am not it becomes a little bit trickier and we have done the whole um i, I would dial in to a, a phone or a laptop or an ipad and be sort of plopped in the corner of the room but it's not ideal you can't really get a sense of what's going on so i think for things like that there will always be a place for in-person um, interventions but in terms of the flexibility and the autonomy that it provides for a young person to be able to say yep i've got my appointment now and i'm gonna you know organize that by myself i'm going to access that by myself definitely you know we used to spend so long trying to timetable things based on when people were in and not in college no, we, there's no need to do that <laughs> you know because they can do a session from wherever they are so it's just in some ways just easier in terms of how it fits into their life but no absolutely some things have to go back to being face to face don't they mm -hmm. i think some of the anxiety other therapists had around telehealth was how the evidence base for the interventions that they'd be doing in person weren't there once you moved onto a different platform things like formal assessments you know mm -hmm. are they still valid results but one of the things that you put into the information that you sent me was how there is already a lack of evidence base. Exactly. It's something we basically. struggle with all day, every day. So this makes no real difference to it. We're still using it flexibly. How do you manage that lack of evidence base on a, on, in a more typical way? So outside of COVID, is it that you are working almost so functionally and person centered that, that the evidence base is in, in a sense negated because because the advocacy and functional element comes into it or are you adapting more structured interventions and assessments and things for your young people um a bit of both really um i think in terms of target setting it's 
wholly client-centered um, and I would never dream of suggesting that we work on something that they're not bothered about and I can genuinely see that they understand the consequences of not being bothered about it and still don't want to do it. Um, so it, when, when we're working on those kind of targets, the evidence base that we, we primarily use is around the preparing for adulthood agenda that's tied into their education healthcare plans. Mm -hmm. And the fact that if they want to work on those things and they are working towards their aspirations and their outcomes, then a bespoke package focusing on that and showing measurable progress in those areas in terms of confidence or competence is you know evidence enough mm -hmm. in terms of specific programs that we might run it's rarer we wouldn't typically um use kind of uh, an intervention that's um perhaps evidenced for a younger group with them just because it's not doesn't tend to be as useful for them mm -hmm. and they don't tend to want to do it um but if we do it our challenge is more around making it age appropriate um and yeah like i said we're kind of using the evidence base incredibly flexibly and just making sure that we're tracking progress the whole time to make sure that we're we're not wasting ours and their time um so yeah just constantly sort of checking in with them and the people around them mm. and i think for some young people where their needs might be more complex measuring that change in the traditional outcome measures system can be really difficult actually they're making huge shifts in their confidence in their willingness and ability to communicate with all the people that they want to communicate with they're starting to work really successfully towards achieving their own life goals but that doesn't seem to ever be reflected if you look at the really standard outcome measures that the majority of pediatric services would have so to be able to to measure your impact in that different ways essential really and I wonder how much commissioners understand that that's what you're doing compared to maybe maybe a younger pediatric service population where you can say well they they can they have all of their consonants in the right place at the right time or now their language is age appropriate and and you're not necessarily working towards those milestones in the same way mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think also the same applies around it, it being relatively a relatively new area because of the extension of the education healthcare plans. Mm -hmm. So the, there is less progress available to, to document. So, you know, we, we follow the therapy outcome measures model within our service. So I will track the TOMS scores mm -hmm. for my young people at regular intervals through the year. But there will only be a couple so far because of the amount of time that we've been working with them. Um, so for commissioners and for sort of um, senior leaders, sometimes, you know, there is less um, uh, evidence and proof to, to show them. Um, but I think, you know, we, we do get really good feedback um, from services and we did a, um, a, a feedback form, like a, a Microsoft Teams form. Mm -hmm. um, after our first term of delivering teletherapy and we had about 200 responses wow. and the you know the response was really good um people liked it if not preferred it would like it to continue um parents feeling like they had more awareness of what was going on particularly for sort of the school age children where you know they perhaps didn't have as much input before because it would have done would have happened in provision mm -hmm. um so yeah i think they can see that as well um so for for the post 16 guys they can see 
they themselves filling in this form and saying I find it really useful because it makes me feel less anxious and those things are really powerful absolutely and you put that you've done an EHCP almost audit recently does that tie into developing that provision further tell us the, the service evaluation yes. yes yes so um so it's more of a, an ongoing project. So I had approval to track young people when they leave education, whether that be at 25 or, or earlier, but whenever they're no longer enrolled in education, um, their plan obviously ceases. Um, but it's very rare in, in my experience from what I've seen of those um, college leavers that on the day they finish college, they have achieved all of the outcomes in mm. their plan because quite often they are, you know, their life goals. They're around getting jobs, living independently, and that doesn't happen the day after you leave <laughs> services. Yeah. Um, so the project is tracking those young people for one, three and five years post plan ceasing to see if they're, EHCP outcomes are achieved and maintained across the course of that time period, hopefully with the intention of either proving that the interventions that were put in place had a long term impact or suggesting to us those goals were too big and we actually need to rein it back a bit and the outcome is perhaps to just develop the skills to enable someone to apply for a job it's perhaps not realistic for a young person to successfully interview and be offered a job by the time their plan ceases that's more of a goal for their adult life the goal for their education based life is more around searching applying seeing what's appropriate preparing for interview those kind of things so yeah I don't have any information yet on that because um, I've just started gathering participants in the of the levers from um july this year but yeah hopefully in in one plus years time i will have some more information about what that looks like that's really exciting and i wonder whether that will have an impact on ald services or um any of the agencies that support young people who still have often a relatively significant level of impact on their life in terms of their communication needs or, or other disabilities that they might have, whether that will help to fund some of those services and support networks that are struggling to stay afloat in lots of ways for this gap almost. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We have a, we have a really, um, really useful resource in in our borough that is um, basically an employment agency but specifically for um, adults with additional needs mm. um, so it, it's only from 18 plus so again if they leave between that 16 to 18 mm. <laughs> they're, they're lost a little bit um, but yeah for, for the guys that are older than 18 um, the service is brilliant and provides all the kind of support that we would provide so I'm sort of in close collaboration with them to make sure one that we're not doubling up mm. and two that when they do leave education they can still continue to access those services um, and hopefully when I look at sort of the progress from the service evaluation project I'll be able to see those that were known to the employment agency versus those that weren't um, and see if that has any any difference on sort of their outcomes and what happens for them for the rest the rest of their lives you should do this nationally after you've done your borough <laughs> it would be so interesting yeah. to see um, the geographical breakdown of, of kind of where those services sit 
mm-hmm. those people because I think locally there's a there's a real deficit um, for us for that kind of support. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about how it's kind of quite a small service often post 16 but your service that you're within is expanding rapidly you have such a good reputation you've already talked about other boroughs starting to work with them for post 16 with that comes from my experience people all of a sudden want you and they want you now (laughs) you don't necessarily have the resources or the staff to provide it how is it going managing that balance between wanting to expand and support more people and being able to keep up as an ever-growing team because your team's massive now isn't it it is yeah yeah considering when, when I started so as I say three or so years ago I was the ninth member of the team <laughs> um, and we're now a team of over 70 and we encompass speech and language therapy and OT and assistance um, so yeah it, it's absolutely astronomical <laughs> the um, rate of increase in our service and it definitely does come with those challenges I think it's, it's absolutely lovely um, that that colleges and boroughs are kind of recommending our services and actually stating preference for our services. So if, if we're working in a college and another borough tries to sort of send a different provider in, they kind of say, oh, our preference is, is for, for Cognus. Um, <laughs> so that that is lovely. Um, but as you say, yeah, it can definitely get out of hand very quickly um, and recruitment can't always keep up. Um, so I think it's important to sort of continue the growth of the service to you know give a little extra so you know be able to stretch and see a few extra assessments so that then there can be the potential for them to come on but what we have to be mindful of is not accepting all assessments that we get requested because ultimately we know if we recommend therapy they're probably going to want us to do the therapy Mm -hmm. Um, and an assessment is very different to you know five years of ongoing therapy in terms of you know can we squeeze it in yes or no Um, so yeah it it does it does definitely pose a challenge but you know we we've we're in terms of the way we work as a company if it's evident that the contracts are coming in there is no problem from our company's point of view with putting out a job ad Mm. Um, so that is very refreshing it is literally just the delay in applicants applying Mm. interviewing them them giving notice and then them starting that causes the lapse so more often than not if we put a waiting list on it will be because we know somebody is starting after Christmas and the the assessments will wait until then and you have one of our lovely graduates, don't you? That's we recently started with you as well, which is just amazing. I think what I was most struck by, because obviously I have come to visit you guys a few times now mm. for student placements, was you are a massive team, but you're a very friendly, warm, collaborative team still. There was no clickiness to it uh, and it seems like you work really well and and are all pushing towards the same direction which was amazing I think for a team so big I think even smaller teams sometimes the dynamics mean that that can be quite difficult um, do you think that some of that is what has developed the reputation as well yeah possibly you know I think that is definitely acknowledged by pretty much everyone that in- encounters our team is is that notion of it being you know an incredibly large but incredibly friendly and mm. sort of welcoming team you know our management are, are really strong um, and they provide that 
ethos from the top. Um, so that's really important. Um, and I think, you know, even we've, we've had people start during lockdown, you know, the, the student you mentioned included, um, yeah. and the fact that that has gone successfully to actually enroll a member of staff when you haven't seen anybody face to face mm. is kind of a testament to the nature of the team and the fact that people do reach out and sort of offer support in any way they can. I wanted to stay when I came to visit, <laughs> desperately hoping for a job <laughs> Well, we've always got adverts out. <laughs> Where do you see Post 16 going? You've, you've had this expansion, you've got such an exciting project underway and you are a very innovative team, I would say. What's your dream plan for the Post 16 service? Um, I think, I mean, more staff would be great. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I supervise a number of um, therapists within the team, some of which work in post-16 and some of which don't. Generally, by the time I've been supervising them for a couple of years, they tend to at least be doing a day in post-16 because I've <laughs> convinced them that it's the way forward, um, which is obviously great. And it, it's brilliant to have any support that we can and to you know, educate more therapists around the ways of working in post-16. But permanent full-time staff in post-16 are obviously the ideal because of the flexibility that I mentioned because of mm. being full-time post-16 so that's that's the dream that our post-16 team will be sort of permanent and the members of staff within it will be full-time on post-16 contracts um, beyond that I think you know our relationships are really good in colleges um, th there still is a little bit of the sort of postcode lottery or you know what was on your education healthcare plan when you were five still remains now that you're 19 um, so I think hopefully now that there is more consistency lower down the education system that will continue into post 16 and with the education of therapists in the lower education system to move towards more of a post 16 model so perhaps more of a consultative check-in approach rather than tons and tons of direct sessions there will be the preparation earlier on so you know obviously from year nine we're looking at the preparing for adulthood outcomes and well the whole way through we're looking for them but really from year nine we're focusing in on them um, and i'd like to see young people making that change more gradually rather than what is perhaps happening to date where they have quite intensive therapy right up until they leave secondary mm. school and then they come to me and I go you don't need all of that you know we're working around environment and partners and I'm reducing it right down I'd like to see it more of a gradual transition so that then it can feel like less of a drop um, but you know obviously continue providing those services in that last push as I've said to into adulthood also continuing to strengthen our relationships with the adult services um, and making that next transition uh, seamless as well. So it actually sounds like your core service is a beautiful one, <laughs> a fully functioning beautiful one. It's actually the, the in and the out that is where you see the, the focus needing to be made. Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of establishing relationships with different services, but also within our own service, you know, mm. people that have th therapists that have never touched on post 16, then being asked to do a report for a year nine pupil may not necessarily be aware of what it will look like by the time they turn 16. Um, so definitely there, there's there's room for education and training within our service as well. 
I cannot wait to see you take over the world. <laughs> I'm hoping that you become a national beacon and that you work your way around to, um, to all of us to, to help this be provided for, for these young people across the nation. Because I think you're doing something really amazing where you are, for sure. And you've definitely convinced me to go full-time post-16. So. <laughs> you're an amazing advocate. Thank you so much for no talking to me today. I really appreciate your time. And I'm hoping that you might have converted a few more. Yes, this podcast. Um, look on our website, lots of job ads. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the UEA Extra Salt podcast. You can find the SLT teaching team at UEA on Twitter with our handle at SLT underscore UEA. Or alternatively, if you'd like to contact me directly, you can find me at Emma SLT Ferris. Talk soon.